And this is briefing three in the briefings that we've been going through in our resistance event. And so, uh, in your resistance field manual, I think Sister Marie gave some of those field manuals to the adults uh, that are in here. So if you have one this morning, uh, you can open to briefing number three, and it is entitled Swordsmanship 101. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be talking about the sword of the Spirit. And each of these in the briefings that we've put together, um, they all go together. And So if you have a book this morning and you missed out on briefing one and two, you're not a teen or young adult and you'd like to uh, still get in on that, we'll, we will have the messages posted on Facebook on our resistance group if you're not a Facebook user and uh, you'd like to hear the messages from Friday and Saturday, if you'll let me know, we'll get them to you on CD. But um, if you could um, make it a point to, to get all of the information that's in that resistance field manual, I think it'll really be a help to you in your Christian life. But this morning we're going to talk about swordsmanship 101, and we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, and let's read it again and really pay attention to what is being said here in the book of Hebrews. Verse 12 says, For the word of God is quick. Now, that is not a word that we use in the same context today as what it was used back when the King James Version of the Bible was translated. But when it talks about quick, normally we think about being uh, fast. Um, we think about someone who is, runs fast or doing something quickly. But when the... King James interpreters translated this word as quick. That word means alive. And you've heard me say before, if you've ever cut, cut your nails and cut it into, into the quick, then you'll know exactly what that word means because it hurts, doesn't it? Because if you cut your nail into the quick, you cut into the part of the nail that's still alive, right? And so that's what the word quick means. It means alive. So we're being told here the word of God is quick. It's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Someone has said we can never defeat God's enemies or win God's battles without God's book. Now what a true statement that is. There is no hope for us as uh, soldiers who are fighting the good fight of faith, there is no hope for us to win if we do not use God's book. We need God's Word to be able to fight this battle and to be able to win our war against Satan. We can never defeat God's enemies or win God's battles without God's book. Now, I talked about it a little bit in the kids' sermon, but the... Two-edged sword, uh, because realize the sword of the Spirit is mentioned by Paul in Ephesians in chapter 6 in the armor of God. He talks about the sword of the Spirit. And here we have the author of Hebrews. Some believe that it was Paul. We don't know for certain. But the author of Hebrews in chapter 4 verse 12 kind of uh, goes more in depth into that idea of the sword of the Spirit and tells us that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, most likely the sword that both those authors, Paul and the author of Hebrews, maybe one and the same, but no doubt probably the sword that they had in mind as they spoke of a sword 
that was compared to the Word of God most likely was the Roman gladius sword. And that is the sword that you see in gladiator movies and stuff like that. That is the sword. It's a short sword with two edges on it. That is the sword most likely that was being talked about. And I think there's some interesting things that we can glean in the comparison of the sword of the Spirit with a sword if we compare it to the Roman gladius. Now, I want to just read you some stats on the Roman gladius. The Roman gladius was a short, stabbing sword with a blade between 20 to 24 inches. Man, that's 50 to 60 centimeters, if, if that makes more sense to you. It's about 2 inches wide. It had an unguarded hilt. That was a word I was trying to think of earlier, but couldn't. The hilt is this area right down here. Now this, you see it has these lines, this decorative piece. That actually is what they call a guarded hilt. right? So that if someone was chopping, it could slide down and it would be caught on this, this guard here. But the Roman short sword did not have a guarded hilt. Now the tang normally consisted of three pieces. That's the part where your fingers go around. A rounded hilt, a grip with four finger ridges to fit the fingers, and a bulbous pommel. The gladius, developed from a Spanish style of sword, allowed Roman legionaries to fight side by side with shields, taking the blows of the longer swords of their enemies. The gladius was worn in a sheath on the right side, with its small size allowing it to be drawn by the right hand, which is easier for someone carrying a large shield in the left than having the sheath on the left-hand side of the body. So, the Roman soldier, they'd have a shield, and the shield would be like square. And they were huge. They were like the size of a door, you know. And they would take these shields, and then they had the Roman short sword, the gladius, and they would use these shields and these swords, and they would fight uh, side by side. And the Roman gladius was perfect for that kind of uh, fighting because it was a short sword. If they were attacking someone who had longer swords, then they could step into the guard of that enemy, block their sword with their shield, and they'd have plenty of room to be able to take their sword and hit the enemy without hitting their soldiers or comrades that were beside them. That's how the Roman gladius was used in fighting, and it was extremely effective in helping... Uh, Rome conquer the world. Someone else said, looking back at history, one of the most recognized sword of any culture is the Roman sword, the gladius. The highly trained and disciplined Roman legionnaires, cavalrymen, and infantrymen all capitalized on variations of this highly effective weapon. The sword skills of these warriors combined with the advanced materials used in making these swords resulted in one of the most successful military reigns of all time. Overall, the Roman short sword is known as the sword that conquered the world. Did you get that? That's the sword that the Word of God is compared to. The sword that conquered the world. One of the most well-known Roman combat tactics developed was when a Roman soldier simply stepped forward inside the enemy's guard so that the longer sword would be useless. At this point, the Roman soldier could quickly cut and thrust in any direction swung. The tactic was perfect against enemies with longer swords or spears. Gerald Whelan, who is an authority on swords, he's written several books on uh, swords from this time period, he said this about the Roman short sword, the gladius. He said, as a sword, the gladius is perhaps the single most important type of sword in human history, embodying artistic, historic, and geographic factors in a way that no other weapon has ever done. 
That was the Roman short sword. That is our sword. The sword of the Spirit. The author of Hebrews says that actually this sword is better than the Roman gladius. Because he says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. I want you to understand this morning what a great weapon we have in our arsenal, the sword of the Spirit. What a shame that so many Christians don't pick it up and use it. What a shame that so many Christians don't use their greatest weapon. A Bible commentator speaks of the sword of the Spirit. He says, the sword of which Paul speaks is as he explains it, the Word of God. That is the revelation which God has given of Himself or what we call the Holy Scriptures. This is called the sword of the Spirit because it comes from the Holy Spirit. That's why it's called the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It receives its fulfillment in the soul through the operation of the Holy Spirit. And an ability to quote this on proper occasion, and especially in times of temptation and trial, has a wonderful tendency to cut in pieces the snares of the adversary. In God's Word, a genuine Christian may have unlimited confidence. And to every purpose to which it is applicable, it may be brought with greatest effect. That is the sword of the Spirit. That is what we're talking about this morning. Swordsmanship 101. And as we contemplate this sword, I would submit to you, you must be skilled in fighting with the sword of the Spirit. Just as a gladiator would practice and be skilled in fighting with his gladius, so too, you and I as believers need to know how to use our weapon, the sword of the Spirit. We need to be skilled in fighting with the sword of the Spirit. And why is it that it's such a powerful weapon? Why is it that it's such a wonderful resource to the Christian? I think the answers to that question is found right here in, chapter, in verse 12 of chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews. The first thing I want you to consider about the sword of the Spirit is this. Consider its substance. Consider its substance. Now, some historians bicker about whether the Romans had steel available to them. Uh, in fact, one historian states there is no evidence for widespread, regular, intentional production of steel in the Roman Empire. But the real problem in a historian making a comment like that is this. The only essential difference between iron and steel is the amount of carbon that is in the metal. So regular wrought iron, so some historians would say no, they only had iron. But the only difference that makes a difference between iron and steel is the amount of carbon that's placed in the metal. Regular wrought iron has a carbon content of about 0.5%. And steel has a carbon content of 1.5%. So not a huge difference. He says it's, a, it's possible that this much carbon was imparted to the blade by the charcoal used to heat the metal as the smith forged the blade. This contact between the metal and the charcoal would create a sort of outer layer of steel in a process that's called carburization. It is doubtful that the Romans knew that this process was taking place. They probably just observed that the blades that were heated and reheated were stronger than those that were not. So we see that the Romans had an advantage of steel more than likely. You see something of the idea of how strong that gladius, that Roman short sword, was. And that 
uh, happy accident, if we could call it that, of that, car- that carbon being imparted to the iron and making it stronger, uh, may just have been what allowed that short sword to become so successful in the military victories of Rome. But you know, historians may argue over the composition of the gladius. They may argue whether Rome had the technology of steel or whether they were simply iron swords. But let me tell you this morning, there is no question over the content of our sword, the sword of the Spirit. There's no question over the substance which goes into it. Paul tells us very clearly what the substance is for the sword of the Spirit. He says it is the Word of God. He says that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. And I want you to understand that our sword of the Spirit is powerful because of the substance that is within it. The substance is the Word of God. This is no ordinary book. This is an amazing book. I want you to hear some of the things about this uh, book that we hold, the Word of God that we have in our hand. Dr. Raymond Barber says this about it. He says, It is a library of divine truth written by God, interpreted by the Holy Spirit, and having as its subject matter the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible contains history, prophecy, law, literature, drama, poetry, music, philosophy, science, theology, biology, etymology, and all other areas of human knowledge. The Bible was written over a period of 1,600 years, from about 1,500 B.C. to 100 A.D. It was written by 40 different writers. Kings wrote it, paupers, priests, preachers, prophets, and at least one doctor, the physician Luke, had a part in writing it. There are 66 books in the Bible. They came to us originally in two languages. Old Testament written, with the exception of a couple of passages in Ezra, Daniel, and Jeremiah, in Hebrew. The entire New Testament in the language of Greek. The Bible was written from many countries, spread over at least two continents. It was written in prisons, palaces, caves, mountains, oceans, valleys, hilltops, islands, and in all other places all over those two continents. Yet God brought 40 people together in their writing over 1,600 years to reveal a total library of divine truth. Understand the substance of our sword is what makes it powerful. The substance of our sword, soldiers, is the very Word of God. There is no doubt this morning, the Word of God is a living book. It's quick. It is alive. It is living. A living book written by a living God. And that's why you and I can have confidence when we go into battle because we know the substance of what we fight with. Understand how powerful the sword of the Spirit is. Understand the substance behind it. The second thing that I want you to understand about the sword of the Spirit is not only its substance, but understand its strength. Not only does it say that it is quick, it's alive, But the Word of God also declares that it is powerful. It has indeed tremendous strength. Now, there's some interesting parallels that we can glean when you understand how swords are made and how blades are are made as strong as possible. As the iron is reheated and hammered repeatedly, a strange thing takes place in the blade. It becomes an iron blade 
with thin strips of steel throughout. This works out very well because it gives the blade the strength of, of steel with the resilience of iron. Once the blade meets the specifications of the blacksmith, it is normally quenched. That's how they do the swords now. This involves bringing the blade to white heat and then plunging it into a bucket of water. Quenching gives the blade its initial strength and makes the metal quite hard. But the problem with quenching is that it makes the blade quite brittle. So it must then be tempered. To temper a blade, it is reheated a final time to a very specific temperature. The temperature it is raised to determines the hardness of the blade and how well it will keep its edge. The only way a Roman smith could determine the heat of the blade was through its color and his own experience. This is where the skill of the smith really came into play. But get this. According to one historian, Williams, the Romans preferred blades that were allowed to air cool after being tempered to those that were quenched. Now, how interesting that is in our parallel with the sword of the Spirit. Some of you may be familiar with a passage over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19 that tells us, quench not the Spirit. Interesting that the Roman soldiers preferred not to have their blades quenched. And listen, as soldiers, we need to make sure we don't quench our blade, right? The sword of the Spirit. Make sure that we quench not the Spirit. We can make sure that we don't quench the Spirit by listening to what the Holy Spirit tells us to do and obeying what God has told us to do in His Word. Quench not the Spirit. I want you to think this morning about the strength of this sword that you and I have. Voltaire was an 18th century agnostic philosopher. He was a writer. He was a poet. But he was an unsaved man. In fact, he was an atheist. Voltaire once said this, he said, 100 years from now, there will be no Bibles, he said. Ironically, the very room where he spoke those words is a distribution center for Bibles that are sent all over the world. Something else interesting about the man who said that the Bible would not exist in 100 years. On December 24th, in 1933... They gathered all of Voltaire's work, so all his philosophies, all his rantings, all the things he said, to sell them. Remember, he was a noted author, poet, philosopher, scientist. And do you know what his work sold for? Eleven cents. That's what his works were worth. Yet he said there would not be a Bible around in 100 years. What's interesting is on that same day, December 24th, 1933, one manuscript of the Bible, the Codex Sinaiticus, was purchased by the Russian government from the British government for $500,000. Interesting, isn't it? Voltaire, who said there won't be a Bible around in 100 years, his work's worth about 11 cents. And on the same day, the Word of God sold for $500,000. Why? Because man recognizes the intrinsic value of this book. Even unsaved people understand the value of the Word of God. 
And you know, we as Christians, we need to understand the value of it. We need to understand how strong it is. It's quick. It's powerful. There's a story told about a British regiment. They were once ordered to charge a body of French soldiers. The trumpet sounded, and on they charged boldly, heading toward the French soldiers, but not to victory. Their swords broke like a wave that launches itself against a rock. They were sacrificed to a traitor's fraud, forged not of the truest steel, but worthless metal. Their swords bent double at the first stroke. What could human strength of the most gallant bravery do against such odds? They were slaughtered like sheep on field. And ever since, says the author, ever since I read that tragedy, I have thought I would not go to battle unless my sword was proved. I want you to understand this morning that our sword, the Word of God, it has been proven. It was forged in the all-consuming fire of God's holiness. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. The one who made it has the utmost experience. He has the keenest eyes. It was hammered out by God Himself. You know what? This word has been battle-tested. Scoffers, critics, they've hurled their insults at it. They have tried to tear it down. They've made fun of it. They've ridiculed it. They've said it won't be around in a hundred years. And yet, it stands. My friend, we can take this sword into any battle. And as a believer, you can know that you can fight any foe. Anything that the devil may throw at you, you can face him boldly because you've got a strong sword. Think about the strength of the Word of God, the strength of our sword of the Spirit this morning. Not only do we see this morning its substance makes it a worthy weapon, we also see its strength makes it a worthy weapon. But now I want you to consider, if you will, I want you to consider its sharpness. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Turn over, if you will, to Psalm chapter, or excuse me, uh, Psalm 149. Psalm 149, a short psalm, nine verses. We'll read all of it. It says, Praise ye the Lord. Sing unto the Lord a new song, and His praise in the congregation of saints. Let Israel rejoice in Him that made Him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their King. Let them praise His name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto Him with timbrel and harp. For the Lord taketh pleasure in His people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written, this honor have all His saints. Praise ye the Lord. You see, even the psalmist there understood the importance of a two-edged sword. He makes the distinction that that is the kind of weapon that 
the saints should have in their hand. That's the kind of weapon they need. You see, it's superior. A two-edged sword. And listen, that is what the Word of God is, Christian. That is our weapon, the sword of the Spirit. It is sharper, says the author of Hebrews, than any two-edged sword. Now, it's interesting to understand how they would fight with the gladius, how those Roman soldiers would use it. Listen to this article. It says, The double edge of the Pompey sword, the gladius, is a, a variation of the gladius, also gives evidence to the fact that the Romans valued the ability to cut at an enemy rather than just thrust at him. In addition, a short blade is much better for, suited for fighting against a long sword when in the hands of a skilled soldier. The quick delivery of a stab to the face or stomach was still a favored method of executing the enemy. The warrior just had to step inside of the enemy's guard and kill him. Short swords also less tiring when used in conjunction with a shield. That is how the sword would be utilized in fighting. That's how the sword would be utilized to take Rome on to victory. And I want you to understand this morning that the Word of God, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It can be used for cutting and thrusting, chopping, slicing. It is the weapon of choice. And you can take it with you into any battle against the enemy. You know, the sharpness of the sword was extremely important. Think about this. It's, it's really an important thing. It's no accident that the author of Hebrews brings out that the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. This was a, an important thing uh, in choosing a sword. This was an important thing for military success. The sharpness of the sword was important to the success of the military. The right kind of blade could tip the scales in favor of the hand that held it. A sword sharp enough to pierce the enemy's armor would enable the soldier to win the fight. You know, that's what the gladius would do. Sharp enough to pierce armor. And yet we're told that our sword, the sword of the Spirit, is sharper than any two-edged sword. I want you to understand this morning, soldier, you have a mighty, mighty weapon here in front of you. Use it. Use it to your advantage. Some of you may have seen the movie Mutiny on the Bounty. The film and the novel, it's a film based on the novel, is a true story about a British ship that was called the Bounty. The Bounty left England in the year 1787 for the South Sea Islands. After ten long months, it finally reached its destination. The crew of the ship spent six months on that island in a particular, specific, and designated job that they were sent to do. And then they started back to their native country. Before they were seaborne very long, some of the sailors re uh, rebelled. You remember Mutiny on the Bounty was the name of the movie in the novel. They put Captain Bly and his few faithful men who stood by him out of the ship to face an open sea. The Bounty continued on to the Pitcairn Islands with the mutineers aboard. When they landed, one of the first things that these rebels did was to find a native plant on the island which they could distill whiskey out of. So they were an upstanding, wonderful bunch of sailors, sounds like. And they did that to their ruin. This whiskey that they began distilling was the downfall of the whole group of sailors. And in the process of time, every one of those sailors died on that island except one of them, whose name was John Adams. 
Now, one day while John Adams was looking through the possessions of one of his late sailor buddies that had died, he found a copy of the Bible. He began to read that book and he kept on reading. The Holy Spirit spoke to him and John Adams was gloriously saved. He then began to teach the natives on the island the Word of God. I want you to listen to this and get an idea of how, how powerful the Word of God is. Understand what a wonderful uh, weapon we have here. Twenty years went by. Not another man came to that island. It was just John Adams and a few natives. One copy of the Bible. They started a new colony. That colony was crime-free, disease-free, and almost could be called trouble-free. After 20 years, a ship landed, and the passengers were amazed to discover a colony that was free of crime, free of disease, happy, healthy, and prosperous. And why was it that colony was like that? You remember, the other sailors, when they were living by the whiskey and living that kind of life, they all died. Yet John Adams, when he came across the Word of God and started applying it, and then he shared it with the natives, what a wonderful thing happened to their situation. You understand, this book is not an ordinary book. It is a supernatural book. It is a living book. It is a powerful book. The author of Hebrews says it is sharper than any two-edged sword. We have a wonderful weapon. Let's make sure as believers, soldiers, that we use it. Now, I've given you the, the why we ought to use the Word of God. Now let me just briefly give you a quickly how it is that you can use it. And you might want to, maybe on the back of your field manual, you might could jot these down in short form. It might help you. But the first thing that you can do is study it. Study the Word of God. That is how you can become skilled in fighting with the sword of the Spirit. Spend time every day reading the Word of God. And then spend time studying it. Do what you're doing this morning, right? Be faithful to church. Listen and be ready. Come, come ready. Pray and ask God to speak to you when you come to the services. Study the Word of God. Not only that, but memorize the Word of God. We ought to have various texts of Scripture right at our fingertips so that when the moment of temptation comes, we don't have to run and find our Bible, but we have it hidden in our heart. If you'll do that, you will greatly enhance your ability to fight against the enemy. And then I want you to listen to this. We ought to trust God's Word. In Proverbs chapter 3, 5 and, five and 6, this is, Trust in the Lord with all of thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy paths. Trust the Word of God. I want you to hear what one commentator said about trusting the Word of God. He said, we should not depend on our own reason or rely on our own wisdom. Listen to this. A single text of Scripture is better to meet a temptation than all the philosophy which the world contains. I agree with that 100%. The tempter can reason, and he can reason plausibly too, but he cannot resist a direct and positive command of Almighty God. Listen to this. Had Eve adhered simply to the Word of God, back in the Garden of Eden, right? If she had just stuck with the Word of God, 
and urged his command without attempting to reason about it, Eve would have been saved. You know what got Eve in trouble? When she doubted the Word of God. Hath God not said you may eat of every tree of the garden? You see, we need to trust the Word of God. Don't use your own reasoning. I like what he says. One single text of Scripture is better to meet temptation than all the philosophy that the world contains. He says the Savior met the tempter with the Word of God, and that tempter was foiled. He says, so we shall be safe if we adhere to the simple declarations of the Bible and oppose a temptation by a positive command of God. But the moment we leave that and begin to parlay with sin, that moment we are gone. You know, we need to trust, trust the Word of God. And then lastly, we need to share it. Okay, you got those? Study it, memorize it, trust it, share it. That's how you can be skilled with the sword of the Spirit. Share it. We need to make sure that uh, those of us who have children, we need to make sure that we're putting the Word of God into our children. You know, and some of you don't have children, but uh, you have young people that you have influence over. Give them the Word of God. And then we need to be active in witnessing to everybody that we can, sharing out the Word of God. We ought to do that because you know we have that promise. We looked at it in our Let It Rain uh, series. We looked at that promise in Isaiah where it says, the Word of God shall not return void, but whatever it's sent out to do, it will accomplish it. It will not return void. Whenever you give out Scripture to a co-worker or a friend at school, it will have an impact on their lives. And listen, that's why the Word of God is so important. That's why we ought to be active in sharing the Word of God. We have a powerful weapon, the sword of the Spirit, And as long as we have our sword, we can be victorious no matter what the temptation, no matter what the trial, no matter what the struggle. One last illustration this morning, and I'll be done. This story comes from the Korean War, and I think it illustrates the kind of attitude and the kind of confidence we ought to have once we have the sword of the Spirit by our side. As enemy forces advanced, Baker Company was cut off from the rest of their unit. For several hours, no word was heard, even though headquarters repeatedly tried to communicate with the missing troops. Finally, a faint signal was received. Straining to hear the corpsman, he asked, Baker Company, do you read me? This is Baker Company, came the reply. What is your situation? Baker Company replied, The enemy is to the east of us. The enemy is to the north of us. The enemy is to the west of us. The enemy is to the south of us. Then he paused for a moment. And then the sergeant from Baker Company said with determination in his voice, the enemy is not going to get away from us now. You know what? That's the kind of attitude you and I need to have as believers. We don't need to cower at Satan. We don't need to be afraid of the forces of darkness. We have a weapon. We have the sword of the Spirit. And as long as you have that, and you're studying it, and you're memorizing it, and you trust it, and you're sharing it, then you can face the powers of darkness. You can face them knowing that you have a weapon that will get you through any situation. We need to make sure that we understand the great value in our weapon, the sword of the Spirit. And let me just leave you this morning with a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Down in verse 57, 
Paul says this. He says, But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, I want you to understand this morning, you can make it. You can live a life that's victorious, and you can live in such a way that honors and glorifies the King of kings and Lord of lords. But in order to do that, you need to understand the information that we went over in Swordsmanship 101. This has to become an integral part of your life. Not just Sunday morning, Sunday night. It has to become part of your life all the time.